The martyrdom of Stephen is a crucial turning point in the history of the church, and because of that, it's a crucial turning point in the history of the world. If you wanted to summarize what happened in the first century to change the course of human history, you would certainly talk about John the Baptist. You talk about the ministry of Jesus. You talk about Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, his exaltation to the right hand of the Father, his gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. But if you wanted to tell the foundation of the mission of the church fully, you would have to include the death of Stephen among the events that sets the trajectory for the church. Until Stephen dies, until Stephen is stoned to death, everything takes place in Jerusalem. The mission of the church is confined to the capital city of the Jews. But as soon as the first martyr sheds his blood, as soon as one man fills up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, as Paul says in Colossians, then the mission of the church begins. Then people leave Jerusalem. They go to Samaria. They go to other cities. Eventually they go to Rome. The mission of the church in Acts does not begin with the death of Jesus directly, but begins instead with the death of Stephen. Luke says that the disciples are scattered from Jerusalem. The verb he uses is the verb form for the word that's behind the word diaspora. Diaspora. And when we hear that word, we probably immediately think of the diaspora of the Jews, of Israelites, from Jerusalem, from the land of Judea, in the Babylon, when the time of the Babylonian invasion. The Babylonians come in, they take over Judea, they take over Jerusalem, they destroy much of Jerusalem, they destroy Solomon's temple, and then the people disperse, some to Babylon, some to Egypt, some to other places. There's a diaspora, and in the first century it was well known that the Jews were part of the diaspora. There were Jerusalem Judean Jews that were still in the land, but then there was a diaspora of Jews all over the Mediterranean. That's the word that, that Luke uses here to describe what's happening to the church. But this is a new diaspora, and this is the event, I think, that Peter and James are talking about in their letters when they talk about the dispersal of the 12 tribes. They're not talking about the Jewish diaspora, they're talking about the Christian diaspora that begins with the persecution that follows the martyrdom of Stephen. If you're thinking in terms of Babylonian exile, you might think, well, that's weird. Why would the Christians, who seem to have been faithful in Jerusalem, be dispersed from their capital city? They're leaving their homes behind. They're leaving their capital city behind. They're leaving the temple behind. This looks like a judgment. Are they being scattered like chaff before the wind? Are they being scattered like straw? Are they being scattered like the Jews were back at the time of the Babylonian invasion? This is a scattering, but it's in fact the opposite of the scattering that took place, of the diaspora that took place uh, at the end of the history of Judah. Instead of a, an exile, this is in fact a, the beginning of a return from exile. Everything is upside down in the New Testament. Jerusalem has been the city of the great king, but now Jerusalem has become spiritually Egypt and Sodom and Babylon. And the disciples who leave Jerusalem are in fact leaving Babylon. 
you remember back in the Old Testament, there was a diaspora. Many Jews ended up in Babylon, but as soon as Babylon was conquered by Persia, then they were sent back home. They were sent back home to reconquer the land, to resettle the land, to take back their inheritance. That's the kind of scattering that's going on in the book of Acts. The Christians are not being scattered because of their sin. They're being sent out of Jerusalem, which is now Babylon. They're being sent out of Jerusalem in order to claim their inheritance in the same way that the Jews leaving Babylon claimed the old inheritance of the land. But for Christians, the inheritance is much, much bigger. The inheritance includes all of the earth. Jesus won all the nations. Abraham is heir of the world, Paul says. And so when the Jews, when the, when the, when the Christians leave Jerusalem and begin to scatter to the different cities of Asia, the different Greco-Roman cities eventually to Rome, they're going out to claim the inheritance that was promised. This is not a defeat of the church or a judgment for the church. It is a diaspora, but they go out dispersed, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And the first stop on this return from exile, the first stop of this new conquest of the new inheritance is Samaria. That's where Philip ends up. After Saul has started the persecution in Jerusalem, Philip, one of the seven, one of the seven so-called deacons, is among those who flees from Jerusalem in order to escape from Saul's persecution. And he ends up in Samaria. Well, who are the Samaritans? What is Samaria? Samaria's history begins in the history of the kings. Jeroboam founded the northern kingdom when he left the kingdom of David. He abandoned Solomon's kingdom. We have no portion in David. Solomon is not our king. And ten tribes seceded from Judah and established a separate kingdom in the north. Omri, the father of Ahab, was the one who actually bought and built Samaria and made it the capital city of the northern kingdom. And from the beginning, the northern kingdom was an idolatrous kingdom. Jeroboam I set up shrines for golden calves at Dan and at Bethel. That was the official worship of the northern kingdom. Omri comes along and he built a temple for Baal in the capital city of Samaria. And of course, Ahab and Jezebel continue the Baal worship. Throughout Israel's history, that is the northern kingdom's history, it was devoted to idols. And so the Lord sent in the Assyrians to scatter them in judgment. But things got even worse then because the Assyrians brought in other peoples. They didn't want the Israelites to cohere together and form some kind of opposition to the Assyrians, so they resettled peoples into the land that used to be Israel, and those peoples brought their own gods. So all through the northern kingdom's history, they were idolatrous. When the Lord judges them by sending the Assyrians, new idols come into the northern kingdom. And that continues on right into the first century. Samaria was a place of idolatry and corruption and apostasy. And the Jews knew it, and the Jews hated the Samaritans because of it. Even the twelve, even Jesus' disciples, you know the story of James and John wanting to call down fire from heaven to destroy a city that did not receive Jesus. Well, that's a village of Samaria. They want fire from heaven to wipe out the Samaritans the way that fire from heaven wiped out Sodom. 
The Jews have given up on the Samaritans. The Jews consider the Samaritans unclean, like Gentiles, only worse, because they are unclean brothers. They're like family that's turned away from the family. The Jews despise them. But throughout that entire history, that history of idolatry and apostasy, Yahweh, the God of Israel, never, ever gives up on the northern kingdom. Ephraim is my son, he says to the prophets. Can I forget my son? He may be a prodigal, but he is my son, and I'm waiting for him to return, and I will receive him with rejoicing when he returns. In fact, Ezekiel promises that very thing. He promises a reunion of the kingdom. After Israel, which has been laid out in the grave of exile, a valley of dry bones, after they're raised from the grave of exile, then the Lord is going to take the stick of Israel, the northern kingdom, and the stick of Judah, the southern kingdom, and he's going to tie them together into one scepter. And he's going to give that scepter to one king, a new David. So Judah and Israel, which have been separated and hostile for centuries, are going to be reunited under a new David. The ten tribes which had renounced the reign of a Davidic king are going to be restored to the Davidic kingdom. That's what Ezekiel promises. And centuries passed, and that does not happen. Divisions deepen, hostilities intensify, and then along comes Philip, preaching the good news of Jesus, the son of David. And this time, the Samaritans don't reject the message of Jesus. They receive Philip as a herald of Jesus Christ. Philip gets to work repairing the broken body of Samaria. He heals the lame. He heals the paralyzed. Philip gets to work exercising the city of Samaria, the capital city of the old northern kingdom. He casts out demons. And then the apostles come. Peter and John come from Jerusalem, and they come and lay hands on the Samaritans who've been baptized, and they receive the Spirit. It's a little Pentecostal event in Samaria, of all places. And when Philip is done, everything that Ezekiel promised has happened. Samaria is tied to Jerusalem, bound together by one spirit. Samaria and Jerusalem have received one baptism. Samaria and Jerusalem are tied together like two sticks with one shepherd, one king. They are one nation with one king, the new David. And as in Ezekiel 37, they become part of an exceedingly great army that's going out to reclaim the land. That's what Ezekiel 37 is about. Israel's going to be raised up from exile, they're going to be reunited, and then they're going to go into the land, back into the land, and resettle it and reconquer it. The mission begins from Jerusalem, and now it sweeps up the Samaritans. And the Samaritans become those, among, they're among those who are going out to reclaim or to claim the land that belongs to Jesus, which is, in other words, the world. Samaria, uh, Philip is doing in Samaria exactly what the apostles have done in Jerusalem, exactly what Paul's going to do throughout the cities of Asia Minor and Greece, exactly what the Christians eventually do to the Roman Empire. Of course, individuals are being saved. 
individual Samaritans are baptized, they believe and are baptized, and they receive the Spirit. But the mission of the church is not completed when individuals have turned to Jesus. The aim of the mission is to reclaim the inheritance. The aim of the mission is to transform the cities of the Roman Empire, to baptize cities into the kingdom so that they leave their old allegiances behind and become uh, citizens of Israel, citizens of Zion. That's what's happening in Samaria. And as, Isaiah, as Psalm 87 says, the Lord now says to the Samaritans, this one was born here. Samaritans, idolaters, apostates, hated by the Jews, they hate the Jews in turn. They are children of Mother Zion. They're the regathered sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. This one was born there. That's all kind of in the background of Acts 8. We have a few verses on Philip's ministry in Samaria, a few verses about the apostles coming and conferring the Spirit through the laying on of hands. But a lot of what happens in this account is focused on Simon. And that fits the return from exile theme too. You think back to what happened when Israel went back into the land. The land was still occupied. There were a lot of people in the land called the people of the land. And they didn't like the Jews coming back and resettling the land. They were compromised. They worshipped idols. They tried to keep the Jews from resettling and rebuilding the temple. If you go back, if you go to claim your inheritance, you're going to meet opposition. The Jews did when they came out of Babylon. The apostles and others do when they come out of Jerusalem in this new return from exile. And Simon is one of them. Simon is a magician. He's caught the attention of all of the Samaritans. They pay attention to him because he dazzles them with his tricks. He's kind of the religious glue. We're told that people both great and small are impressed with Simon. He's created a little false church in Samaria. But then Philip comes along, and Philip captures the attention. The same word is used. Simon had the attention of the Samaritans. Now Philip comes, and he captures the attention. Philip amazed everybody with his tricks. And now Philip comes, and Simon, I'm sorry, Simon amazed everyone with his tricks. And now Philip comes along, and Simon is amazed at Philip. You see, Philip is replacing Simon as the focal point, the religious focal point of Samaria. He's the contact point with powers beyond human powers. That's what Simon claimed to be. But now Philip becomes that, and Simon becomes kind of a, kind of a deacon. He attends to Philip. He's like Philip's lapdog. That's what's going to happen in all of these cities around the Roman Empire. Wherever Paul goes, he confronts Sometimes Jews, sometimes magicians, always religious leaders of one sort or another, who have captured the ear of the rulers of the Roman world, Paul confronts them, engages in some kind of conflict with them, and overcomes them. He's conquering the religious life of these cities. That's what Philip is doing here in Samaria. Once Philip comes into the church, though, we have another aspect of his work. Philip comes into the church, he's baptized, he becomes a believer. But when he sees what the apostles can do, they've got magic in their fingers. 
They can confer the Spirit with their fingers and probably uh, put people in some kind of ecstasy. I expect that in Samaria, it's not said explicitly, but I expect that people are speaking in tongues and prophesying. And the apostles seem to have this in their hands. And Simon, thinking in standard magical terms, thinks, I want some of that. I bought some of my powers, some of my spells from somebody else. Maybe they'll sell this one to me. I've sold spells. Priesthoods and spells and magic powers were up for sale. There was a bustling market in religious power in the ancient world. And Simon thinks that's how the things work in the church, too. We can bring the same religious economy that existed when Philip got here. We can just transfer that into the church. And so he asks Peter to sell him this power. Give this power to me so I can help you. I mean, you've got to come all the way from Jerusalem to confer the Spirit on these Samaritans. I could do this for you. You don't have to come all this way. Just give me that power. I'll give you money for it. And Peter issues a stinging, ferocious rebuke. He tells him that he is crooked in his heart. He does not have a straight heart. He tells him that he is uh, among those, he's like those in the crooked generation that's going to suffer judgment. His heart is not right with God. He's attached to silver, which is not just attached to money, but it's a kind of idolatry. Peter has heard Jesus rebuke idolaters of mammon. And he's doing the same to Simon here in Samaria. Philip comes with the apostles. He doesn't just become the focal point of the religious life of Samaria. He doesn't just preach the gospel. He doesn't just convert and baptize people. He sets up a different religious economy. Religious power just works differently in the church because all religious power in the church is simply God's power. That's all it is. There are no other powers operating in the church and God is not for sale. So Peter rebukes Simon and Simon slinks away. He asks for prayer from Peter. And we don't know what happened. We have an unfinished story. We hope that uh, Simon returned. That's Philip's ministry in Samaria. His ministry is not just a ministry of baptizing and preaching the gospel. It's a ministry that's directed at re remaking, transforming the religious life of Samaria so that Samaria can be rejoined with Israel. They can become part of a new Israel. As you might remember, Acts, the basic outline of Acts, moves from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. That, uh, Jesus says that at the beginning. There will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's the big outline of the book of Acts. It begins at Jerusalem and ends with Paul in Rome. But Philip skips ahead. Acts chapter 8 is kind of a microcosm of the entire book. Philip starts in Jerusalem. He's ministering, serving tables in Jerusalem. Then he goes to Samaria, which is the next stop on Jesus' itinerary. But before he's done, he's met this Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopia is at the margins of the biblical world. The name for Ethiopia in the Old Testament is Cush. And the Cushites, the Cushites settled the area around present-day Ethiopia in the aftermath of the flood. The son of Cush is Nimrod. And Nimrod is the man who founds both Nineveh, 
which becomes the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and Babylon, which obviously becomes the uh, capital of the Babylonian Empire. Those are both Cushite empires. Cush is on the margins of the biblical world, but sometimes monsters come out from these margins and invade. Babylon and Assyria are Cushite peoples who invade and take over the land. And one terrifying episode during the reign of King Asa of Judah, Zerah of Ethiopia, Zerah of Cush, brings a million-man army into Judea and invades it. Ethiopia has the connotations and the image of kind of an uncanny, monstrous power lying just over the horizon, but it might rise over the horizon and invade. In spite of that, the Lord holds out hope to Ethiopia and to Cush all the way through the Old Testament, as he always considered Samaria to be part of his people and held out hope to Samaria. So he holds out hope for Ethiopia. When Yahweh sends Cyrus to release Israel from exile in Babylon, Isaiah prophesies, then Egyptians, ancient enemies of Israel, and Ethiopians will bring their treasures into Zion. There's going to be a pilgrimage of nations, and they're going to bring all of the treasures that they have, and they're going to use them to adorn the new city of Jerusalem and the rebuilt temple. And we see a little glimpse of the future ministry and the future Christianization of Ethiopia in the book of Jeremiah, with the character of Ebed Melech, another Ethiopian eunuch. He's a servant in the uh, in the court of Zedekiah, king of Judah. And when Zedekiah has been convinced by all of his Jewish counselors to put Jeremiah to death, to throw him into the pit without water or food, this Ethiopian, this outsider, this eunuch, intervenes. And he confronts Zedekiah with this evil and injustice. And he even pulls the prophet out from the pit. He's like a, a, power, a resurrecting power. He brings Jeremiah up from the grave so that Jeremiah can continue his ministry. That's in the background when Philip comes to meet this Ethiopian eunuch. He meets him in the wilderness and he preaches the gospel. This is, a, this is an Ethiopian God-fearer. This Ethiopian already knows the God of Israel. He already worships the God of Israel. He's coming home. He's heading home from Jerusalem after a feast. He's reading the book of Isaiah. Somehow the book of Isaiah has gotten all the way to Ethiopia, and you have a prominent member of the queen's court who has a copy of Isaiah and is reading it as he rides in his chariot. Philip meets him. Philip preaches Jesus to him from Isaiah 53 and from all the scriptures. And the Ethiopian is baptized. And Psalm 87 applies to him. Psalm 87 explicitly mentions Cush. The Lord lists off a number of nations that have been enemies of Israel. Philistia, Egypt, Cush. These are all my sons. When you set up a list of the home-born sons of Israel, the home-born sons of Zion, Ethiopia will be among them. And Philip is the first to harvest from Ethiopia. Like the Samaritans, the Ethiopian is incorporated into this exceedingly great army. He continues the return from exile. He's going down to claim a new land for Jesus. 
He doesn't head back to Jerusalem after he's baptized. Jerusalem is behind him. The old is passing away. There's a new field of mission. There's a new land that Jesus is going to inherit. And this Ethiopian eunuch is going to be the fruitful missionary to Ethiopia and bring a harvest. There's scattering and then there's scattering. There's diaspora and then there's diaspora. When Israel was dispersed from Jerusalem by the Babylonians, that was a judgment. When the Christians are dispersed from Jerusalem, which is a new Babylon, that's not a judgment. That's a deployment. And Philip is part of that deployment. But whatever the reason for the dispersion, dispersion, scattering, is always the beginning of mission. Even when Israel was judged and scattered among the nations, that was the beginning of an enormous expansion of influence of Jews and of the God of Israel through the Gentile world. They go out as seeds planted all over the Mediterranean world. Yes, they're scattered because they sinned, because they persisted in idolatry. They didn't listen to the prophets. But the Lord turns that judgment into a blessing to the nations. Jerusalem is judged, but the residents of Jerusalem span out all over the Mediterranean. That's what's happening to the Christians. The scattering of the Christians from Jerusalem is a sowing. And any scattering that's happening in the church since then any scattering that's happening in the church today. And there are scatterings that are happening. Christians that are being displaced from their homelands because they're being persecuted. Christians who are among the refugees have, who have to flee before war. That's happening in many places of the world. But each one of those scatterings is an opportunity and an opening for a new mission. Scattering is always so. And because of that, scattering always leads to joy. You don't want to leave your home behind. You can imagine that these believers who are leaving Jerusalem behind are, it's painful. It's sorrowful. This is their home. This is the city of the great king. And they have to leave it all behind. But they know they're going out as seed. And seed is always a promise of future harvest. And the promise of future harvest is a promise of future Joy. It's not accidental that at the end of both phases of Philip's mission, Luke tells us that the people who he preached to rejoiced. Samaria had been full of unclean spirits. By the time Philip's leave, Philip leaves, it's full of the Spirit and the joy of the Spirit. Philip is snatched away from the Ethiopian eunuch. But the Ethiopian eunuch continues on his way back to Ethiopia, rejoicing. Whatever displacement we might experience is part of the mission. It's not a deviation from the mission. And whatever displacement the church experiences in history is always a sowing that will lead to the joy of harvest. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.